Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and we are in week number 11. And this week, we're going to continue working our way through the book of Isaiah. Now, I know that Isaiah is not an easy book to read. There's a lot of information here, a lot of prophecies, a lot of information about other nations. And so I hope as we work our way through it, we can kind of help you understand some of the details, some of the bigger picture moments here. Now, this week, we're going to pick up at chapter 5 and probably continue through chapter 36. Now, chapter 5 of Isaiah is probably one of the lesser-known chapters, but it's an extremely important one to understand the perpetual issue that Israel had with sin. And using a word picture, Isaiah told of a vine dresser who did everything within his power to produce a productive vineyard. But yet, in spite of all of his abilities and in spite of God's gracious help to the man, this um, this vineyard, it only yielded bad grapes. And these grapes being Israel and Judah, you know, we're back to talking about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And as a result of this, God threatens to destroy the vineyard, citing six reasons or six woes as to why this will happen. And if you look in the text, these six things that the Lord hates, six specific sins that Israel had perpetual problems with, you find them in verses 8 through 23. They are greed, which is loving possessions more than people. They are hedonism, which are those who pursue pleasure more than God. Rebellion, those who choose to mock rather than submit to God. Immorality, those who love evil more than good. Pride, those who think they are wiser than God. And lastly, injustice, those who care for themselves while ignoring the rights of others. Now, because of this, judgment was on the horizon for the nation of Israel. That judgment would come in the form of distant nations. We know that ultimately for the northern tribes, judgment came by the hands of the Assyrians. And ultimately for the southern tribes, judgment came by hands or by means of the Babylonians. Now, Rather than recording his call to ministry in chapter 1, like a prophet would normally do, Isaiah records his call to ministry here in chapter 6. Now, God calls Isaiah to serve as his prophet, his messenger to the nation that stood on the brink of national disaster. And what amazes me about this chapter is that God specifically tells Isaiah that his message to the people would have no effect on them. It would be as if their hearts were calloused. How long would the message go unheeded until the cities were destroyed, God says, and the people were taken into, is, into exile? So if Isaiah began his preaching in the year that King Uzziah died, as the text says there in chapter 6, then Isaiah preached for roughly 38 years before any revival took place. Now think about that. I doubt any one of us would volunteer to serve as God's ambassador, having no fruit for a ministry for 38 long years. Mission boards would have dropped those people long, many years ago. But what this passage is teaching us, at least to me what it's screaming, is faithfulness. God told Isaiah early on that it was not going to be easy. You know, Jesus spent a lifetime trying to get the nation of Israel to accept him as their Messiah. But only after his death and subsequent resurrection did the people actually get it. You might be in a ministry that seems fruitless. Um, it might be fruitless for a number of reasons. But know that sometimes God wants to teach us faithfulness. Sometimes I think we give up too easily. Now, moving on to chapter 7, it's important to understand the flow of the book so you don't get lost in all the details, um, because from this point on, there's a larger argument here. The bigger picture that is, it's trying to show us here, starting in chapter 7 and going through chapter 39, this long section, Isaiah deals with Israel's major decision that she faced. Would she trust in Yahweh or in the other nations? That's the essence. That's the theme we might cite to this entire argument. 
You know, that this decision was a matter of faith. Who is more trustworthy, God or other nations who might seem strong? God promised that trust in the nations would result in destruction, but trust in him would result in blessings. We might term this section Israel's crisis of faith. Um, If Israel is ever to become a servant nation, a nation through whom God used to manifest himself to the world, then the most basic truth is that she must learn that God can be trusted, whereas the nations, they cannot be trusted. And one author powerfully said it this way, he said, until a person or nation is convinced of God's complete trustworthiness, they cannot lay aside the lust for their own security and become God's servant. Now, with all this in mind, chapters 7 through 12 provide the first test of sorts. Would Israel trust in God or would they trust in Assyria? That's the big question that you find in chapter 7 through 12. So in chapter 7, we come to the historical situation. King Ahaz has to make a decision about trusting in God or trusting in the nation of Assyria. If he doesn't trust in God, then he's doomed to live in the shaky and panicking condition he's presently living in. So it's obvious that Assyria is not the better option. Assyria will not offer the security that God offers. And so Isaiah speaks up in verse 10 and says to um, to Ahaz, he says, allow the Lord to give you a sign, Ahaz, that trusting in him is the better choice. But Ahaz refused to ask the Lord for a sign. It's apparent he'd already made up his mind to trust in Assyria and doesn't want it changed. Well, Isaiah gives him a sign anyways, and Isaiah reminds the king that he is from the house of David, and that's just reminding him about God's covenant with David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in spite of Israel's mistrust and disloyalty to God, God would still be faithful to his promise to David and to show that utter faithfulness we have a prophecy of a child born, that child being the future Jesus. Now, Matthew quoted this prophecy in Matthew 1.23, but this prophecy of a child being born was a sign of judgment to Ahaz. Ahaz's land would be, um, it says, will be destroyed, and he would be rejected as king because of his unbelief. Though the birth of Christ does not occur for another seven centuries, it had meaning for Ahaz because it signaled his impending doom and because it had potential to be fulfilled in his days. Now, obviously, we know it wasn't, but Ahaz didn't know that at the present time. Now, to know what God, or excuse me, now to know what was going to happen in the present situation, God gave another sign of a child born through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is a near sign, a sign in Isaiah's day that would validate the far sign, the sign in chapter 7 of the Messiah coming later on. And so these two chapters are closely connected. Both chapters mention a child who will be a sign of God's plans for the future, but the children to be born are not the same. Now the rest of chapter 8 is on the importance of listening to God and not trust or excuse me and trusting in him alone. You see loss of faith in God results in an increase in superstition and there were many who were seeking guidance elsewhere instead of from God. And how ironic is it to consult the dead for information about the living? Back to the Bible Isaiah preached, we might say, if the predictions of the false um, protagonists did not harmonize with the written revelation of God's word, their counsel was darkness rather than light. As we move into chapter 9, chapter 9 shows us that in contrast to Ahaz, who refused to listen to and obey God, the Lord would raise up a faithful king who would be born, and he would shatter the darkness of Gentile oppression. Again, a child here is the centerpiece of the prophecy and provides hope for the future. Four specific titles identify him here in chapter 9. Wonderful Counselor pictures his wise judgment. Mighty God stretches his divine power. Everlasting Father suggests his never-ending protection 
protection and support. And then Prince of Peace characterizes the type of kingdom that he will rule. This ruler who will sit on David's throne will bring lasting peace, justice, and righteousness to Israel. And of course, we know that ruler to be Jesus. Though Israel's future hope would come only through the birth of a child, many in Israel did not see the need to wait upon God. They thought that they could rebuild the ruined nation by their own strength. And because of this, God announced his continued judgment on them. Four times he repeats the judgment with the phrase, The Lord's anger will not be satisfied. His fist is still poised to strike. Now that's the phrase that I read from my NLT in chapter 9, verse 12, verse 17, verse 21, and chapter 10, verse 4. So four times he repeats the same phrasing for the judgment reminding us that it is sure to come. Now, earlier God revealed that he would use the Assyrians to destroy Judah for her lack of trust in him. But now in chapter 10, God reveals that he would also destroy this destroyer, the nation of Assyria. And it's God who is sovereign, not Assyria, as he was with his people. He is the transcendent one, the one who controls the destiny of nations. The victories of Assyria did not prove the superiority of their gods, nor did Judah's defeat mean that Yahweh was inferior. The whole chapter here contrasts two sovereignties, Assyria's and God's. And I think that you might be able to guess whose sovereignty is the real deal. Now, moving on to chapter 11, Isaiah moves from God's deliverance of Judah to his promised Messiah, who will bring about lasting peace, not just temporary peace. The return of the Messiah to set up his kingdom will signal the end of cursing and the beginning of blessing. Peace will even extend to the animal kingdom. The branch here in verse in chapter 11, as he is called, will accomplish everything that God has intended for his people. He will be the rallying point for Israel. The Messiah will reclaim his remnant from wherever they might be scattered. By the way, this true peace is in contrast to the false peace that the Antichrist will bring uh, in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, he will use this peaceful approach to gather Jews from all over the world during the tribulation so he can persecute them and eventually kill them. Uh, the world will come to know true peace only when the Prince of Peace is seated on his throne in Jerusalem. And in that day, as chapter 12 says, Israel will sing praises to God and inform all the nations what God has done for them. In other words, they will be fulfilling God's original plan for Abraham's descendants to be a light to the Gentiles. You find that in Isaiah 42. So that through them, through the nation of Israel, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. Remember, that's a promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Now moving on to chapter 13, we come to a new larger section, chapters 13 through 23, which details God's judgment on the nations. Let me make some observations about the list of nations here mentioned in chapters 13 through 23. When the Bible presents a list of items, what is placed first or last is often of particular importance. In this case, Babylon and Tyre are two that are important. Second, the items on which the writer spends the greatest amount of time, or verse numbers we might say, could be of more importance. And in this case, it's Babylon and Egypt, or Cush, which is a, a region near Egypt. Third, if any of the items are repeated in the list, that obviously could indicate that they're being emphasized by the author. And of course, Babylon is the one that's being repeated. Therefore, to me, these three observations highlight Babylon's importance in Isaiah's message here in chapters 13 through 23. Now, if you're paying attention, you know that Babylon is not a major player for world domination at this time. 
The previous chapters are all about Assyria and her dominance. So why the sudden change to Babylon in chapters 13 and 14? Well, think about it. What Babylon represents and how the nations of the world are intoxicated with her wine. Babylon was the land that spawned humanity's rebellion at the Tower of Babel. While the Babylonian Empire does not come into existence for nearly a century, Babylon was and is a symbol of self-exalting pride and its glory. The other nations of the world were just like Babylon in the sense that they were prideful, believed the lie that they could control their own destinies. They drank the Kool-Aid. Or to use what I said earlier, all the nations, all other nations, saw the wine that Babylon offered. The wine of pride and self-reliance. And they drank so much of that wine that Babylon offered that they became intoxicated or controlled by it. And God would bring judgment on Babylon and he would bring judgment on the other nations as well. Chapter 14 finishes with judgment on Assyria and Philistia as well. Now, as you get into chapters 15 and 16, they contain God's judgment on the nation of Moab for her pride. You know, the Moabites were more friendly neighbors um, of Judah than the Edomites or the Ammonites, who also lived east of the Jordan River. But hostility towards Judah due to land claims in the Transjordan area, it had a long history and resulted in deep antagonism. Um, places like Zephaniah talk about that. The point of this um, judgment of this oracle is that Judah should not rely on Moab because she would suffer destruction. Even when uh, he must judge people, even when God must judge people, the Lord has pity on them and grieves over destruction that he might send. You know, when the Moabites would pray to their idols, there would be no response, no help. How foolish then! for the Judeans to trust in Moab for help. Again, they can't trust in Assyria, and they're not supposed to trust in the Moabites for help. Then you get into chapter 17, and we have God's judgment on both Damascus and Syria. And earlier in the chapter, both of these nations were in a plot to attack Judah. So it's fitting that both nations are linked together in judgment. And then you travel into chapters 18 through 20, and they announce judgment on the nations of Egypt and Cush. Cush was a nation in the... Um, in the areas of southern Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, kind of in that region. And this nation symbolized the ends of the earth in Isaiah's day. And Judah had made an alliance with Egypt and Cush, an alliance that she thought would provide protection instead of seeking after God for protection. God speaks judgment against Cush in chapter 18 and Egypt in chapter 19, and then described the specific judgment he would bring on both nations in chapter 20. So in chapter 20, Isaiah walked about, it's a really good picture here, Isaiah walked about barefoot and stripped of outer garments to deliver a dramatic message. He did that for several years. And just as he stood humiliated before the people, so the armies of Egypt and Cush would be humiliated in front of the Israelites. And so chapter 21 is more judgment rendered on Babylon again here. Babylon shows up as well as Edom and Arabia. Are you getting the picture yet? It seems like Judah is constantly bent on seeking help from every other source except for God. Why does she want to simply trust in the Lord? Why doesn't she want to do that? Has he not proven himself enough time and time again? Well, this is nothing new under the sun, as Solomon would say. We do the very same thing. God proves himself to us time and time and time and time again. And yet we still have the audacity to go after someone else or something else instead of relying wholly in him and on him. Now, when you move down to chapter 22, you realize that even Jerusalem is not exempt from this judgment. Even Jerusalem wants to trust in her walls. She shores up her walls in chapter 22. She stockpiles all her weapons. She stored up her water and food, but the city failed to look to the Lord for help. Jerusalem's um, 
uh, citizens are seen as not caring as the enemy approached and the people decided to eat, drink, and be merry because they expected to die. They simply didn't care what was going to happen to them. And chapter 23 deals God's judgment against the nation of Tyre. And Isaiah reserved his final message of judgment for this city, for the city of Tyre, because it's the city that most epitomized pride. And you can read about that in, in uh, chapter 22. Now, while chapters 13 through 23 detail God's judgment on specific nations, the next section, chapters 24 through 35, detail God's judgment on all the earth. So the prophet turned from the surrounding nations to state that God's judgment will extend to all the earth. So this section moves from the immediate to the long range, from the local to the universal, from the temporal to the eschatological. God is coming to judge the world for its sin and to reward those who trust in him. So chapter 24 depicts God's universal judgment in three specific ways. First, he will punish the powers in heaven above. That is a reference to Satan, the spiritual forces. Second, he will punish the kings on the earth below. That's a reference to the wicked end times rulers who will oppose the Lord and his people. And third, God will establish his reign over Israel on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So soon after uh, God in his judgment will wipe out sinful people, the Messiah's glorious reign begins. And so as you read chapter 25 in poetry form, Isaiah describes the praise that will be ascribed to the Lord during the millennial reign. Israel will respond with praise to God for him judging her oppressors. That's the subject of 25. And chapter 25 is depicting the world rejoicing as Messiah reigns over all the earth. But specifically, in chapter 26, we find a remnant of Israel rejoicing during this time, showing that God did not abandon his special people. Israel sings a song of celebration and reflection on what God has done for them, what, has, what God has done for them throughout their history. I'll get it right. <laughs> then in chapter 27, the focus is on the future regathering of God's people as they worship him in Jerusalem. Now, if you're getting confused, let me summarize the flow really quick. Chapters 7 through 12 make the point that if you trust in the nations, the nations will destroy you. Nonetheless, God will not leave his people in destruction. He intends to deliver them from the nations. But this also raises the immediate question, can he deliver them from the nations? Chapters 13 through 17 answer that question with a resounding yes. Yes, he can. Well, then how is he going to do about that? How is he going to go about that? He will do that by showing all nations, including Israel, that they un are under God's judgment, chapters 13 through 23. And since God is the main actor in the drama of history, what he says will happen. God can and will deliver his people. So Israel, who are you going to trust? So that's kind of where we're at. Now, moving on to chapters 28 through 33, we come to a section called God's Woes. Now, if you've already been reading carefully, you will notice that Isaiah already listed six things that the Lord hates in the lives of his people. We reference those things back at the beginning in Isaiah chapter 5. But here, the six things that God hates are the sins of the rulers. So first in chapter 28 is the prideful scoffing of the leaders of Samaria and Jerusalem. Second, in chapter 29, it's the religious hypocrisy of Jerusalem's leaders. Third, also in chapter 29, is deception by those same Jerusalem leaders who tried to hide their actions from God. Fourth, in chapter 30, it's the stubborn rebellion against God by seeking help from other nations or foreign alliances. Fifth, in chapters 31 to 32, it's a lack of trust in God that's replaced by trusting in military might and military strength. And then sixth, in chapter 33, it's the destructive oppression to God and his plans. I mean, look at this list. Prideful mocking, 
religious hypocrisy, deception, stubborn rebellion, lack of trust, destructive opposition. Sounds like we're talking about our political leadership in today's world. It's foolish to trust in the nations and their leaders, Isaiah was telling Israel. You need to put your complete trust in Yahweh. Isaiah says this time and time and time and time again. Now, chapters 34 and um, chapters 34 and 35 conclude this major section that we've been talking about God's rule over the nations of the world. These two chapters are about judgment and blessing. These chapters present contrasting images of a productive land that has turned into a desert, chapter 34, and a desert that has turned into a garden, chapter 35. And so to me, the comparison is quite clear. To align oneself with the nations of the earth is to choose a desert, chapter 34. To trust in God is to choose a garden, chapter 35. In other words, pride leads to humiliation, whereas trust in the Lord leads to exaltation. Now, we're going to save chapter 36 for next week because we're out of time. And it's part of a larger section of chapter 36 through 39. And if there's one phrase or word that you need to take away from Isaiah, it's the word trust. And I've said it time and time again, and hopefully you've got it. Israel had a lifelong trust problem. She was always wanting to trust someone else, namely because she didn't understand God's ways. You know, and sometimes when we don't understand God's ways, we have a trust problem as well. Well, Isaiah will say later on that God's ways are far above our ways. So just because we don't understand God's ways doesn't mean we shouldn't trust him. Of any person that has earned our trust in this life, the top of the list should be God. Actually, the only one worthy to be put on such a list is God himself. So if you get anything from Isaiah, understand that trusting in God is what's most important for the nation of Israel. They had a lifelong problem with this. And you know what? We have a lifelong problem with it as well. Lord Jesus, help us. Help us to be more trustworthy of you. Now, that's all we have for this week. So email me any questions you have to Bible reading at lmbc.org, and I will talk with you all next week.